I'm Michael Millerman, and this is Millerman Talks. The topic of today's video is the 2011 debate between Olavo de Carvalho and Alexander Dugan. I'm using the transcript posted on the Institute website online, the Institute that hosted the debate. There will be a link to the PDF in the description. To begin, here's how the Institute introduced the two debaters. On March 7th, 2011, Olavo de Carvalho, president of the Inter-American Institute for Philosophy, Government, and Social Thought, and Alexander Dugan, leader of the International Eurasian Movement, started a written debate on the topic, the USA and the New World Order. The debate ended on May 9th, 2011. Professor de Carvalho is a philosopher currently residing in the United States, who's authored more than a dozen books and has been teaching an online philosophy course to more than 2,000 international students since 2008. His book, Aristotle in a New Perspective, 1996, has been acclaimed as a highly original contribution to the understanding of the Greek philosopher. Dugin is Vladimir Putin's geopolitical strategist, leading organizer of the Eurasian movement, and considered the most influential Russian thinker of the post-Soviet era. His book, The Foundations of Geopolitics, the Geopolitical Future of Russia, 1997, has had a large influence on Russian military and foreign policy elites and has been adopted as a textbook in the General Staff Academy of the Armed Forces of the Russian Federation. The structure of the debate was as follows. First, both participants respond to the following question. What are the historical, political, ideological and economic factors and actors that now define the dynamics and configuration of power in the world? And what is the U.S. position in what is known as the New World Order? So after they each respond to that question, Dugan responds to Alavo de Carvalho's opening statement, and then he responds to Dugan's response. And the next round proceeds in the same way, responding to each other's responses, until in the fourth round, each of them submits a concluding statement. So in this video, I'm going to cover only the opening statements to the question, and in the next video, I'll take on the next segment. Before I begin, you should note that I'm only highlighting the most important or some of the most important claims and arguments. I'm not exhaustively reproducing every point the authors make, although I'm going to present the arguments I do present faithfully. There's no substitute for reading the debate itself, but hopefully this overview will be a helpful guide or shorthand in the meantime. Okay, so the Carvalho begins by questioning whether or not there can be a debate, strictly speaking, between himself and Dugan at all. On one hand, they see eye to eye on so many issues that it would seem there's nothing to debate. So he writes, does he believe in God? So do I. Does he think a metaphysics of the absolute is possible? So do I. Does he wager that life has a meaning? So do I. Does he understand traditions, homeland, and family as the values that must be preserved above supposed economic and administrative conveniences? So do I. Does he see with horror the globalist project of the Rockefellers and Soros? So do I. It is not possible to organize a debate between two people who are in agreement. On the other hand, he stresses that there can't be a debate between people in such different positions of power and influence. He is, he says, a truth-seeking philosopher and educator with no public influence, no ambition, no ambition to change the course of history, 
and he's not beholden to powerful interests. Together with his students, his only hope is to know reality to the utmost degree of our power, he writes, and one day leave this life aware that we did not live in illusions and self-delusion, that we did not let ourselves be misled and corrupted by the prince of this world and by the promises of the ideologues, his servants. No political party, mass movement, government institution, church or religious sect considers me its mentor, he continues, so I can give my opinion as I wish and change my opinion as many times as it seems right to me with no devastating practical consequences beyond the modest circle of my personal existence. Dugan, on the other hand, he writes, is Putin's mentor, the creator and guide of one of the widest and most ambitious geopolitical plans of all time. A plan adopted and followed as closely as possible by a nation which has the largest army in the world, the most efficient and daring secret service, and a network of alliances that extends throughout four continents. To say that Professor Dugan is at the center and pinnacle of power is simply a matter of realism. To implement his plans, he continues, he has at his disposal Vladimir Putin's strong arm, the armies of Russia and China, and every terrorist organization of the Middle East, not to mention practically every leftist, fascist, and neo-Nazi movement which today operate under the banner of his Eurasian project. So, accordingly, he thinks that a debate is not, strictly speaking, possible. Too many agreements on one hand, and too much of a radical disjunction in their personal positions on the other hand. With that out of the way, he now proceeds to answer the question about the U.S. and its place in the New World Order. Uh, De Carvalho's assessment is that, besides Catholic and Protestant Christianity, there are three main projects of global dominance on the world stage today. That is, in 2011. The Russian-Chinese project, the Western project, and the Islamic project personified respectively by the ruling elite and secret service, in the case of Russia and China, the financial elite, in the case of the Western project, and the Muslim Brotherhood, as well as the leaders and governments of some Islamic countries, in the case of the Islamic project. He writes that for the first time in the history of the world, the three essential modalities of power, politico-military, economic, and religious, find themselves personified in distinct supranational blocks, each of them with its own plans for world dominance and its peculiar mode of action. Now, these three blocks are, here's what he writes, the heterogeneity and asymmetry of the three blocks is reflected in the image that they have of each other and also the false image that they have of themselves. And his primary point of emphasis in this response is the misleading image that the Russia-China project has of the United States and that Russia has of itself. Here he's taking aim directly at Dugan as a representative of the Russian project as he sees it. So here's how the Russian-Chinese project views the United States according to De De Carvalho. It describes the Western bloc as a global expansion of American national power as the material expression 
of the open society liberal ideology proposed by Karl Popper, and as the living incarnation of the Enlightenment's materialist, scientistic, and rationalist mentality, and therefore as the enemy, above all enemies, of all traditional spirituality. Now, Russia's false self-image is that it was corrupted by liberals and that it can be the spiritual savior of mankind. So here he sets out to show the errors of the Russia-Chinese project's perception of the United States, taking thereby direct aim at um, Dugan's claims. So first of all, Russia, he says, was not corrupted by liberalism, but was corrupt long before then. The collapse of the USSR enriched former regime supporters who stayed loyal to KGB structures and preserved their KGB mentality. Unlike in the case of Nazi Germany, no one was ever punished for the murder of at least tens of millions of civilians and for the creation of the most efficient machinery of state terror known to mankind. Moreover, not only did the U.S. not corrupt the USSR but ra- and Russia, but rather the other way around. The USSR had operations to corrupt the moral beliefs of Americans through propaganda, drug culture, and other means. Other disagreements he has with the Russian-Chinese Eurasian view of the American project are as follows. Um, So he says Popper's philosophy is not deeply rooted in the United States. So the emphasis on Popper is misplaced on the doctrine of the open society. Moreover, the U.S. is not the center of the globalist project, but as he puts it, it's prime victim marked for death. The globalist elites are so far from being against Eurasian countries that they collaborate with Eurasian countries to undermine and destroy the United States. The globalist elite is not at all free enterprise capitalist, um, is not at all oriented towards free enterprise capitalist liberalism, but is rather statist and interventionist. And Eurasianism targets the United States, but American nationalism is a powerful Christian resistance against both Eurasianism and globalist ambitions. Finally, Russia is not a spiritual fortress, and there's no reason to think Eurasianism will truly institute and defend spirituality and tradition. So much of the emphasis here is on trying to lay bare the false self-image and the false image of the United States um, in this particular project. So here are the concluding lines of his opening statement. It would be wonderful if each country learned how to exercise its own evils before pretending to be the savior of humanity. Alexander Dugan's Russia seems to have taken the opposite lesson from her crimes and failures. Now Dugan's response to the question about the U.S. and its place in the New World Order. So remember, here he's responding to the question. He's not yet responding to the previous submission. His first claim is there's no New World Order to speak of, but rather a variety of possible new orders, none of which has yet become preeminent or predominant. We are still in a period of transition. So how do the options look from the U.S. perspective? First is an American empire with an imperial core and a state of permanent unrest on the periphery, an option he thinks is championed by the neoconservatives. Second is multilateral unipolarity, supported by Obama Democrats, 
which is basically unipolarity where the U.S. would cooperate with other friendly powers like Canada, Australia, Japan, Israel and other countries and solving the regional and solving regional problems and putting pressure on rogue countries like Iran, Venezuela, Belarus, North Korea or on hesitating countries that are striving to assure their own regional independence, China, Russia and so on. Um, And the third option is world government, desovereignization of states, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, George Soros, color revolutions to destroy states being the main uh, mechanism of that alternative. Now, in his response, Dugan provides a brief overview of various aspects of U.S.-centric global geopolitics. So he says, historically, the U.S. sees itself as the peak of Western civilization, as the embodiment, basically, of Western universalism. The West's values are universal. Um, at the forefront of technological and social progress. Um, in the political dimension, he speaks about the victory of liberalism over communism and fascism, its transformation into the default option, which then gets exported onto other countries and destroys, how does he put it here, fragments traditional non-liberal countries and communities. In the ideological dimension, he notes that U.S. foreign policy has become more ideological, demanding human rights actions from other states, though not yet from allies like Saudi Arabia, a case that poses the biggest challenge to the ideological approach. And he highlights economic challenges to the U.S.-centric order, especially the economic rise of China. Okay, so how does he see... How does he see world order from a non-U.S. point of view? Here he outlines a few alternatives. The first is the reactive opposition of more or less successful states that don't want to lose their sovereignty to the U.S. Here it's a matter of degree between total rejection and partial adaptation and cooperation. So, for example, some adapt to Western standards but avoid direct desovereignization, India, Turkey, Brazil. Some cooperate with the U.S. but on the condition of domestic non-interference, like Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. Some cooperate but preserve their particularity and use cooperation to further their national independence. China is the example he gives. And some just oppose the U.S. totally. Iran, Venezuela, and North Korea foremost among them. So that's the first option. The second option, the second alternative, I mean, are the subnational groups and movements that oppose Americanism for ideological, religious, or cultural reasons. Like the Islamic world vision, Neo-socialism, which combines a Marxist critique of capitalism with nationalist emotion and sometimes with ethnic sentiment. And the Eurasian project, Dugan's own project, of civilizational multipolarity. Those are non-U.S. alternatives that are non-state but subnational or transnational. Um, The problem is that the states lack the vision. Powerful states lack the vision. And movements that possess the vision lack the infrastructure to put their ideas into practice. So if the gap could be bridged, there could be an alternative to the U.S. versions of world order. If you can combine the vision of the subnational movements with the infrastructure of the states, you might have something that could oppose U.S.-centric world order. That's the end of the first segment, um, the responses to the original question about the U.S. position in the new world order. Now, the debate gets quite interesting as we move into the second segment, so be sure to watch uh, the next video on that when it becomes available.
I'm Michael Millerman. This is Millerman Talks. Thanks a lot for watching. See you again soon.